0: Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey, folks! Jason Bond from Stoneville, Mississippi, in the podcast studio with Tom Allen, and we have Trent Irby on the line again today from Startville. So, how, how are you today, Trent?
1: Doing good. How about you guys?
0: We're doing good. Good. Good to talk to you again, Tom. Why don't you kind of? Tell folks what we're doing today because it's a little bit unique compared with what we usually try to do on our podcast. Just I was
2: going to say it's kind of the rare situation where we have a little bit of time that we can kind of plan ahead on things. So we're recording some of these podcast situations uh, much earlier than what we normally do. So we're talking with Trent today about early season planting situations in a soybean field type setting. Uh, So we've got no clue what's going to happen in six weeks when it comes to the weather.
0: Yeah, so when Trent starts talking about replants and you're listening to this and it's 85 degrees and sunny outside. And it uh, hadn't rained in weeks. Yeah, don't throw rocks at Trent. You can throw them at me because it was kind of my idea to do it like this. Does that get you off the hook?
1: Man, that's fine. And, Tom, if it doesn't rain for weeks, we'll still
2: be talking about replanting. <laughs> no, right. That, I, that's right. I
0: heard you say that, Tom. Like, ooh, that's, that's I'll, wrong. But I'll okay. be the
2: only person that will be sitting there going, man, it, it hasn't rained. There's, there's no plant diseases. I feel more like a hood ornament than I normally do.
0: The odds of it being early April, just say we you're listening to this in early April, the odds of it not having rained in weeks is remarkably low. In the Mississippi Delta.
2: Exactly. And they'll want to run me out of the state if that actually happens because I'll speak it into existence at that point.
0: Dude. All right. We got to stop. Yeah, we got to sh- stop. Sh- uh, let's talk about soybeans, Trent. When we talked before, we kind of worked all the way up to the day of planting. We talked about varieties. We talked about seeding rates. We talked about inoculums. Uh, we talked just a little bit about technologies. Now we're up to the day when we want to start planting. And, you know, everything's ready to rock, calibrated, tractors are dieseled up, seeds in the hopper, it's time to go. What are we doing, Trent?
1: Well, hopefully we're going to get some beans planted in a good planting window. So as much as we can do in the month of April is going to set us up for uh, the greatest yield potential. Most years we usually will get 30 to 40 percent of our acres planted by the first of May. Some years it's less than that, some years rarely. It can be more than that. But hopefully as we look forward to, to, to the future weather, we'll, we'll have opportunities to get a lot of our acres in during this timely planting window.
2: So what's the first thing we should get back into the field and consider, Trent, just immediately after planting?
1: Well, hopefully we're going we're gonna to not have to worry about achieving a stand and we can focus on getting some weed control out and make sure that we get off to the right start in terms of weed management.
2: What kind of considerations should we have for stand, Trent? What kind of hard and fast numbers are we really considering? How would you go about measuring that to determine what your stand situation is immediately after planting?
1: Usually, we, we're going to worry about our population if we if we encounter some cold, wet weather or some some damage from herbicide applications and things of that nature. Occasionally, we'll we'll have flooding situations, but those are usually all or none kind of scenarios. But Whenever we need to assess a stand, we, we've just got to get a good sample from across the, the field that we're talking about and, and try to gauge the uniformity. Uh, when you're talking about a crop like soybeans with such high seeding rates compared to corn or cotton, uh, you know it, it can be a little bit deceiving when you, when you eyeball it in the field. For example, if you're riding down the turn row and you look at it, you can think, you know, that looks pretty good, and you catch it at an angle. Uh, from the turn that turn row or from the side of the field and you can tell it's pretty thin. So the the big thing is to see do you have a lot of blank areas in the field or is it just uniformly thin for lack of a better way to put it across that field to determine what the next step's gonna be.
2: Any different considerations between your alligator clay, heavier soil classes and something that's a light silt loam?
1: As far as differences in soil texture impact on stand achievement yes yeah he- heavier soils like our, our clay soils we if we get these cold wet situations we we may have some problems with some, some germination and those may be those can be fairly uniform when, when they come up but, but then and then of course when we get different soils especially crack uh, soils that'll crust over you know that's just a, a different situation altogether from the other end of the of the weather spectrum that may be a hard pounding rain that turns off really hot the next day and, and keeps us from getting a stand that way so there's lots of lots of environmental conditions that will impact what our final stand is going to be and it's rare in Mississippi that we get ideal growing conditions to where we don't have to worry about those environmental conditions you know to some degree or another
0: two questions Related to this, and one I know you have an answer to, and one is probably more vague, but the first one, because I know you've done a lot of work on this, assuming uniformity, what's your drop dead number to keep a stand? And then my second question is, how do you judge uniformity? Because that's obviously a moving target.
1: I think I'll answer the second one first, if that's okay. Sure. The, how, how to how to address the the uniformity thing? It's one of those things that, that when I'm in that situation, I try to to get the big picture of the field. Like I said a minute ago, about looking at it from the turn row versus versus a, an angle from the side, and then just walking the field and and just finding those areas that that are the thinnest. To put it politely, I guess there there's not that many beans coming up. And you can do a stand count there, and then you can go to other areas of the field that look more normal. Do some stand counts there, try to try to average everything out the best you can. There's there's no one size fits all answer for it, and a lot of it's just instinct with with that field and and the and the history with that field and what what our producers know that that field can do. As far as numbers to keep in terms of total population, that's going to vary by planting date. So, if we're having this conversation on on April the fifteenth, we're still right in on top of the the ideal planning date uh, range. So uh, you may be better off to, to tear it up and start all the way over and, and just just try to get your ideal uh, population the first time. However, if we're having this conversation, you know after after April's over, we're moving into May. We're not guaranteed to get rains any time, but when you look at our historical situations when we move on in May, we may start getting larger gaps between rains and you're not guaranteed to get a stand the second time you plant, uh, if you do decide to, to tear it up and start over. So in that kind of situation, I'm willing to keep, you know, sixty to seventy thousand plants as long as it's fairly uniform. A lot of people will 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 choose to do some spot planting in, in situations where you have big holes in the field that need to be filled in they'll drop a planter in there and fill those in and maybe keep the keep the, the part that came up good enough but when i say this out loud I, i'll get questions about well why why can't we keep seventy thousand, but but uh, we have to plant 130 kind of hard to answer I, I guess but when i try to word it in my own brain i look at it like this you're talking about factoring in the planting data into that equation i would rather have 70,000 uniform plants that got planted in an optimal planting window than I would 100,000 plants planted later because the yield potential of those earlier ones is that much greater than the yield potential of the last
0: one. For the sake of argument, let's assume that we're above or maybe let's assume we're right below your threshold, but it's getting late. How How do you factor planting date into your replant decision?
1: late end of the window is that what you're asking Yeah So on the late end of our planting window and by late I I generally think of June as late if we're if we're out of May and into June sometimes in that situation we're talking about things that that got planted and didn't catch good enough rain so we had some soil moisture present enough to get to get a small stand up but not the full stand so you also got to take into into account the the future weather, what the forecast is holding in terms of of rain potential coming in. But still, even that late in the window, uh, I I would rather err on the side of keeping an existing stand versus tearing something up to try to get a stand that you might not get. I
0: agree. It's a moving target, and, and it's one of those things you don't know. When those two are pretty close like that, you just don't know till the end whether you made the right decision in and, and a lot of times i feel like that's where you are with replants you just don't ever know and you might not ever know if you made the truly right decision because hurricanes whatever else stuff can go in the tank later on that's beyond your control that you might have missed if you hadn't replanted and all those things just have to be taken in stride
1: in our early planning system that we incorporate here you're gonna have to deal with it eventually. Uh, Replants are just inevitable given the the conditions that we have. You know, back to making a decision on those marginal populations, one other thing that that I have seen guys do, and we've evaluated this in research trials and and had some success with it too, is if you can catch the situation where your existing stand is small enough, so pretty pretty young beans coming out of the ground, and you can have an opportunity to get in there with the planter, you can drop in there and cut your seeding rate and plant beside that row and, and still improve your yield potential from what it would have been. Usually that kind of situation is when your when your population is, you know, fifty thousand to down to thirty or forty thousand, you know, really, really low populations. If you You set your planter back to another 50,000 and went in there and thickened it up. You know, we have some data that would suggest that you would actually improve your yield potential versus keeping it or starting over.
0: A plant like soybean definitely more forgiving than, say, corn when it comes to doing something like that. Tom, thinking about reasons we would replant, obviously, seedling disease could factor into that. So, why don't you talk to us a little bit about early season disease? Well, and I I try to impress upon folks that a lot of
2: times looking at seedling disease affected soybean early in the season is difficult. I'll be the first person to admit that. But pulling those seed, those developing seedlings out of the ground to consider how those emerging roots look and whether or not you actually have plant material sloughing off, look at the overall health of that root, that cotyledon going into the soil, look and see how it appears Uh, And the question I get most years then is, well, did herbicide impact this? Did the herbicide application that we made behind the planter, did that affect the seedling disease, increase the amount of seedling disease that's there? Why would
1: herbicide affect it?
2: Well, that's a kind of flippant question there, Dr. (laughs) Bond. Um, (laughs) You can have some splash up on some of those emerging cotyledon or some of those emerging plants, I'm sorry, that will be... Observed on the underside of the cotyledons that will look extremely pitted, that can in some instances increase the. Dude, I
0: was just messing with you. Wow.
2: The potential seedling disease affecting those plants. Uh, That's a really hard thing to wrap your mind around. No,
0: it absolutely. I mean, the two track very closely together a lot of times and and sometimes you can't tell them apart well I mean, and that, and that's on just what the symptom is
2: that's just what I was gonna say because then the other question is we even get it from several people that we've talked to over the years about well how could we implement some sort of a research trial to consider that and our thought has always been mimicking the environment that allowed that to occur is extremely difficult in a greenhouse or growth chamber And there's an awful lot of moving variables that occur in that particular situation. And in a lot of cases, it's a chicken or egg type scenario.
0: We're actually going to, not related to seedling disease, but we're actually going to play around with some of that this year. Trent's going to help us with it in an effort to capture the environment like you are describing. We're just going to shotgun and do that thing six or eight times in several, several areas of the state and hope, That one of them shows out.
2: The kicker is, and we talked about this in the seed treatment podcast, is that once that emerging plant emerges through the soil profile the efficaciousness of that seed treatment is no longer available in that plant.
0: I don't know what that means. We don't use that word in weed science.
2: I'm sorry. That's that's another one of those big words that plant pathologists like to use.
0: Yeah, we're not all just... Well,
2: whether or not the actual seed treatment component see, or fungicide like that that's with. there has enough oomph to protect the plant <laughs> see, from whatever's in the soil. Oomph,
0: oomph is much more descriptive is than Is oomph, 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 oomph a little oomph. better than
2: efficaciousness?
0: No doubt. No doubt. I oomph. like oomph
1: it really
2: fits. I actually prefer umph too. It's it's a little bit better again for a group of people, but if you can say umph with a straight face, you're probably doing better than I am.
0: We teased about the potential for herbicide injury, but knowing that that is a definite, real possibility, kind of unpredictable. Sometimes you might see it with one mode of action this year and not see it with another mode of action that you would really expect to see it. So, Trent why don't you relate some of your experience in that arena to us and then I'll kinda of throw in, you know, where you want me to as well.
1: From herbicide injury standpoint? Yeah. From
0: from a pre treatment.
1: It's all about timing I guess and, and, and weather most of the time when when I see it, maybe not the wording it as proper timing, but so much more like unfortunate timing. So we make these applications and, and get get our, our ground planted, chase it with a herbicide. And then catch a catch a rainfall event as those seedlings are trying to emerge and come up through that uh, dirt before the before the herbicide has been incorporated from that rainfall event. So, Jason, I I guess I'd like to hear hear your thoughts on timing those applications, those pre applications, and how we can try to avoid that. Maybe in that early early planting situation where we're likely going to get some rain five six days after planting.
0: Like I mentioned a minute ago, the mode of action definitely factors into it. There are certain modes of action that are just pretty much safe and you don't have a lot of concern. And there are others that have a pretty long and unfortunately sometimes colorful history with causing injury. You know, metribuzin's one. I mean, we know going back years ago where it was, well, I don't know if it was the foundation herbicide, but it was certainly a foundation herbicide prior to the premixes that it's a part of now, the rate was much, much higher than what it appears at in some of the premixes in modern times. And so it was just put it out, hope and pray the weather didn't go sideways on you because you knew you were going to re- be replanting because it was just that hard on soybeans. The PPOs have a long history of causing problems. And I mentioned to us a minute ago that You know, you might see one, one year and not the other one. And I was thinking specifically when I said that about PPO's and about metribuzin, because I've seen a lot of the products that contain metribuzin cause a problem one year and the PPO's not, or vice versa, or maybe see PPO injury in in part of the state and metribuzin injury, injury in another part of the state with really no rhyme or reason to it other than generally poor weather conditions. And so when you start to think about injury from a pre-herbicide treatment, there's two different ways that that shows up. There's what Tom described, which is the splash injury, which that would just take you out. If the stars align against you, that one will just put you back to square one uh, or has the potential to put you back to square one. And then some of you just have regular herbicide injury, which is the plant- taking up that herbicide as a targeted plant would and just getting a little bit too much and producing some symptoms of varying levels of severity may be bad enough to kill some plants, may be bad enough to cause a replant, but the the two are not the same. And usually when you see the splash injury, you're going to see it on the stem. You're gonna see it on the undersides of the big thick cotyledons or that unifoliate leaf. And it's gonna be like Tom described, it's gonna can look a lot like seedling disease or certain, certain s- symptoms of seedling disease. If you go back 10, 12 years, a big effort that we made in our recommendations, this was you know pre-extend, pre-enlist, but a big effort that we made in regards to trying to avoid some of this. Was making our pre-application before we planted, because most of those treatments, if you get an incorporating rainfall on them before that seedling breaks the soil, then they're almost always completely safe, and you you at least at least avoid the splash injury. There's still the potential if the weather you know if it's cold and wet, there's still the potential to get some actual herbicide symptom from the crop plant taking the herbicide up into its system, but you at least eliminate the possibility for splash injury.
2: Well, and you should almost add to that, in all the years that I've ever walked a field and really tried to wrap my head around whether or not we were considering seedling disease or PPO injury, it had something to do with the soil class that that particular field had as the predominant soil class. So a lighter soil class ended up having more injury on those plants than what, say, one of the clay soils would have had.
0: No question, you see splash injury more on a lighter texture, maybe not all the way to sand, but you know a silt loam, very fine sandy loam, I couldn't think of another soil texture, but that type of texture. And then on our heavier textures, not so much, but then the other... Component to that, Tom, is if a field is a heavier textured, then it's almost guaranteed that it is stale seed bed to some degree. You know whether that's a fall stale seed bed or an earlier spring stale seed bed, but seed bed is most likely going to be settled. And for sure, we do a lot of stale seed bed on lighter textured soil, but there's still the possibility that maybe we ran a do all or something like that, to rough it up in front of the planter.
2: Well, we'd like to thank our listeners again. We certainly appreciate the time that you give to us on a weekly basis to uh, present this information and think it's important for the Mississippi State University Extension Service. And as always, if, if you need to get in touch with us, you know, feel free to track us down.
0: Trent, we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Tell the family we said hello. Absolutely. Same here. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.